Hi, uh, welcome to the first event in the in the winter 2014 uh, in the writing series. Um, thanks to the Dean's Office of Arts and Humanities for supporting our series, uh, and thanks to the Department of Visual Arts for uh, lending us this this very cool space. Um, we uh, we have a really kind of incredible series this quarter. Uh, I hope stay tuned, uh, look at the poster, um, come to all of them, they're all gonna be amazing. Uh, and I'm really excited to introduce uh, Ray Armantrout, who's gonna introduce Melvin Bidler. So, uh, you know Ray, she's about to walk up, you recognize him, right? <laughs> writer, an editor, and an activist. From 1975 to 1989, he published and co-edited Crawl Out Your Window, a journal of San Diego writing and visual art, which published, and I'm just going to check this with you, because I just wrote some names down, and I'm just going to say them, and we're going to say that you published these people. I'm sure that you probably did. Kathy Acker, yeah. Lydia Davis, yeah. I'm just guessing, Michael Davidson, <laughs> David Anton, and moi, I know you published me. So, Crawl Out Your Window won numerous awards and grants. Mel has also guest edited such journals as Fiction International and the American Book Review. His stories and essays have, have appeared <coughs> in journals such as Golden Handcuffs, love that name, Central Park, American Book Review, and Sunshine Noir, Writing from San Diego and Tijuana. And he's the author of numerous chapbooks and at least two novels, or are they collections of stories? Hard to know, really. The Unmaking of Americans, Seven Lives, and The Encyclopedia of Rebels, both published by San Diego City Works and available over there. So how shall I describe Mel's fiction? Imagine that radical historian Howard Zinn and Groucho Marx had a baby. <laughs> or maybe Karl Marx and Charlie Chaplin. Mel's writing resembles the hysterical laughter that sometimes breaks out when things can't get any worse, and then they do. <laughs> the Encyclopedia of Rebels freely mixes the autobiographical with the impossibly zany. America's hidden and not-so-hidden crimes are investigated in one vignette by fictional girl detective Nancy Drew. Lydia Davis has called the Encyclopedia of Rebels wild, eclectic, opinionated, wacky, and smart. And on the same back cover, I seem to have said, you could call this both an outrageous comedy and a credible look at the world we live in. So if you're ready for that, please welcome. <laughs> <laughs> CityWorks Press is um, associated with a nonprofit organization and a writer's collective out of City College. So all the money um, that the books uh, generate go back to the press to publish more stuff. And they publish regional work. They've already done several anthologies. So even if you're not interested in my fantastic writing, <laughs> this is a way to support the local so um, I'm going to read um, 
one long piece from this book, which is about half an hour, and then just a few pages from another piece that I'll talk about. Um, if I'm, can you hear me like this without the mic? Sort of. It's better. Okay. Okay. So I wrote this book over a period of time. Um, the last piece, which is the title piece, is the longest. And when I wrote that, I had in mind that this would be a collection. Uh, earlier, I was just writing about rebels and myself, of course. So, okay, this first piece is called Stories We Tell Ourselves. And this is the long one. One, the clue of the black keys. Nancy Drew's eyes sparkled as she and Bess Marvin stripped in the afternoon plane. Wasn't it a grand weekend in New York, Nancy cried? But it's good to be back in Skullville Heights. There's your mother, Bess. <laughs> Mrs. Marvin kissed the girls and offered Nancy a little tirade home. Thank you, she answered idly, but I left my epaulets here. <laughs> Nancy studied the eager young stud. Though still in her teens, Nancy had earned quite a reputation, all right. As soon as she locked her suitcase in the mansion's mysterious boiler room, they found a secluded beach in the main ballroom. <laughs> the story, he exclaimed, begins in Mexico. I was with a gang of professors working there last summer. Buried treasure, being held captive somewhere. Suddenly, Nancy interrupted icily. Nonsense, Dick. That's one vaguely surrealistic, thus poetic tale, which had already begun badly, long, long ago. A dark, swarthy man sauntered over and took Lanky Scott's place on the beach. Out of the corner of her eye, Nancy saw the man ominously fisting the blonde professor's topcoat. <laughs> dark, short, sort of a crooked mouth and beady eyes, she replied when the tall, athletic professor came back with a plum. That sounds like the menace Juarez Tino I was talking about. Terry Scott snatched up his coat and plunged a hand into the inner pocket xenophobically. <laughs> it's gone, he gasped. Juarez has the black key, the key to this plot. His companion looked puzzled before gloating. Zutalor. <laughs> Two. Ragged Dick is introduced to the reader. That's a real Horatio character. Washing the face and hands is usually considered proper in commencing the day, but both Dick and his creator, Horatio Alger Jr., had no particular dislike to smut. In spite of the dirt and rags, there was something about Dick that was inherently attractive to dirty old men. It was easy to see if he'd been clean and well-dressed, he would have been decidedly good-looking. Some of his companions were sly, and their faces inspired detumescence on the part of the author. <laughs> but Dick had a frank, straightforward manner that made him a wholesome flavorist. Dick's little blacking box was ready for use, and he looked sharply in the faces of all the passing, non-swarthy, distinguished, albeit portly, rich millionaires, addressing each with, shine your boots, sir. Coy clues an old cot gurgled a Gentile gentleman gently on the way to his umpteen empty emporium? Clues? Too much, declared another grumpy gent. You've got a lovely mope on, young sir, the gent relented, and you have a large rent, too, he added quizzically with a glance at the hole in Dick's baggy shorts. Yes, sir, exclaimed Dick, always ready to joke. I have to pay such a big rent for my mansion up on Fifth Avenue that I can't afford to take less than 10 cents. I'll give you a bully BJ, sir. Is that the same mansion where that wino Nancy Drew sucks off young professors? Inquired the impetuous millionaire. It isn't, anyone else, it isn't anywhere else but there, said Dick. And Dick spoke the truth. The winds picked up. The date palms fell pitifully from the sky. Three, a slave rebellion. The Denmark Vesey affair in the summer of 1822 
has been commonly accepted as the largest slave rebellion plot in American history, one that resulted in the hanging of Denmark Vesey, a free black man, and 34 slaves in Charleston, South Carolina, with, another, with over uh, another 40 imprisoned, perhaps the largest civilian execution in US history. Ostensibly planned by Vesey, a 60-year-old skilled carpenter, the alleged conspiracy called on 9,000 slaves and free blacks to rise up and seize the United States arsenal and ships in harbor in Charleston. Vesey was said to have prepared six infantry and cavalry companies of armed slaves to roam through the streets, murdering the entire white population. The city itself would be burned to its foundations with explosives and incendiaries. The sole whites to be spared would be captains of ships seized after the revolt to carry him and his followers to Haiti and to Africa. But at a conference on Denmark Vesey in Charleston in March 2001, <coughs> Professor Michael Johnson of John Hopkins University dropped his own bombshell, presenting new evidence which demonstrated that far from instigating a plot to kill white people, Vesey was more likely one of scores of black victims of a conspiracy engineered by the white power structure. Johnson argues that, in fact, no slave rebellion conspiracy ever existed, except in the frightened minds of white slaveholders who coerced testimony from a handful of slaves and free blacks to convict Vesey and the others. Prior to Johnson's research, all historians have relied on the official report of the trial published after the court proceedings. Instead, Johnson used the court transcript itself. Since the trial was held in secret and the public and press barred from attendance, the actual transcript is the only authoritative source. He found this transcript in um, the South Carolina State Archives in manuscript form. It was, it was the only copy and it had been buried in that archive all those many years. Although the official report described dramatic scenes where Vesey confronts his accusers and makes statements in his own defense, Johnson shows that the court transcript does not contain a single word of testimony from Vesey. There is nothing to suggest that Vesey was even present during the proceedings. In this stunning piece of historical detective work, which appeared in the prestigious William and Mary Quarterly, and was vividly detailed in John Wiener's Valuable Nation article, Professor Johnson concludes that the politically ambitious mayor of Charleston, then the fifth largest city in the nation, James Hamilton Jr., fabricated the plot as his own path to power and to discredit his political rival, Governor Thomas Bennett Jr. Four of the first black men to be arrested were Bennett's most trusted household slaves. Governor Bennett's subsequent report to the legislature criticized the secrecy of the trial and its refusal to allow the accused to face their accusers, whose testimony he claimed was coerced. The villainous Mayor Hamilton was elected to Congress, served in the House for seven years. Hamilton was then elected governor as the leader of the nullification forces which led to South Carolina's secession 30 years later. Four, an exciting adventure. This was a decisive moment. Nancy Drew was about to learn whether she had passed Dr. Anderson's quiz. Upon this call would depend her chance of a trip to Florida to, to continue her quest for the Black Keys and the Frog Treasurer. Hello, Fran, Nancy remarked frankly into the telephone. Nancy, you made it. I don't see how you did it without going to class, but you passed. Nancy had to giggle. BJ, Fran. How did you girls make out? We passed, and we're thrilled you're going to Florida with us and Bess's dick. Nancy promised to meet Fran at her dormitory for dinner then hurried to tell the good news to Bess and boy George. Near Hannah's right hand was a rolling pin. Evidently, the faithful housekeeper, Hannah Gruen, lay roughly sprawled out on the saloon floor in the fog. Get him, get him, Hannah growled, upon regaining consciousness much, much later. 
My dress is blue and white checked, said Dorothy, smoothing out the wrinkles in it. It's kind of you to wear that, or to want to believe that, said Bach. Blue is the color of the munchkins, and white is the witch color. So we know you were a friendly witch. George didn't know what to think of this, and she knew very well she was only an ordinary little girl who had come by the chance of a cyclone into a strange land. When I was about 10 years old, she began reminiscing, my family took me to Key West. That's where I first became a tomcat. Suddenly she snapped Nancy's fingers off. Maybe the treasure is buried on one of the Florida Keys, the black one. What black one? Best pulled no punches as she mauled the rat. What treasure? moaned a wounded Nancy. Duh, the frog treasurer. The ancient secret the professor stud thinks Suarez Tino has the key for which. George, how did you ever pass that for sugar in a quiz? Nancy wondered aloud. <laughs> well, replied George, rebounding off the red roadster, I benefited from studying the erudite Dr. Johnson's research on Denmark Vesey. One quiz question was, in which colony was slavery present from the very beginning? I knew a slave was aboard that very first frigate from Barbados, which entered Charleston Harbor in 1670. Kel droll, exclaimed Bess. From then on till the US prohibition of new slave importation in 1807, one fourth of all African slaves bought and sold in the US entered through Charleston or one of the lesser Carolina ports. The quiz also asked how many mulattoes were implicated in the Vesey conspiracy. That was easy. None, cooed George. That's right, Bess boomed. Some owned slaves themselves. Many mulatto families were related through kinship and family to Charleston's oldest and wealthiest families. Since pre-revolutionary pre war times, there had been a social tradition of annual balls given by Negro and mulatto women to which they invite the white gentlemen. Prosperous mulattoes and free blacks also distance themselves from the black churches, preferring to worship at the Presbyterian or St. Philip's Episcopal Church which was founded by the city's original Barbadian slave masters. Once again, Nancy ran her fingers along the fine print of the bulging map. <laughs> My father is very handsome and very rich, she asserted quietly. Five, a book and a life. So th this section is, um, I'll read part of it. It's a sort of a summary of the main biography of Denmark Vesey that was written when they still thought the slave conspiracy was real and he was the conspirator. So part of it, um, at the time of the alleged insurrection, Vesey had been a well-respected, seemingly self-satisfied free man for 22 years. He owned a house three blocks from the governor's, was reputed to have seven wives and 14 ports, and many children, most of them slaves. Strangely, Vesey had bought his own freedom in 1800 for $600, which he won in the lottery. Captain Joseph Vesey was under no obligation to sell his property and could have made a greater profit by renting him out. Vesey was a skilled carpenter. So supposedly he, um, you know, had this kind of, you know, mini-wife, uh, happy life, and then suddenly he became really uppity. Um, and he was bad. So, and that's, they don't really account for, you know, why that happened. Although apparently he started taking a kind of pan-African line. Um, so that's the end of that section. Six, what's in a name? Before Dick fairly knew what he intended to do, he was walking down Fifth Avenue with his new friends. Now, our young hero is not especially bashful, but he certainly tipped right over, especially as Miss Ida Grayson chose to walk by his side, leaving Henry Fosdick to strip down the faintly gilded staircase all over his own mother. What's in your name? asked Ida pleasantly. Our hero was about to answer Ragged Dick when it occurred to him that in the present company he better forget his old nickname. Dick Hunter, he answered. Dick, repeated Ida. That means Richard, doesn't it? 
Everybody calls me Dick. I like the name of Dick, said the young lady with disarming frankness. I have a cousin named Dick who's going to college. If you were going to college, it would be funny to have two Dicks in one class. <laughs> that line is from Horatio. Ha, 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 Ida Trill, all the way to her father's bunker. You're a big boy for your age, she added, insouciantly. <laughs> Dick will please. Boys generally like to be told they're large for their age. And this is more from that uh, official biography of BZ, not or the, you know, the main biography before Johnson's research. Okay, born either in Africa or the Virgin Islands, as a boy, BZ was a slave on a French plantation in Haiti. When Captain Joseph Vesey encountered young Telemach at age 14, he was struck by his beauty and intelligence and brought the boy back above deck to the officer's cabin, finding him with fine clothes and treating him, quote, something like an indulged pet. In St. Dominique, Telemach was sold and went to work in the sugar fields. About three months later, however, when the captain returned to Cape Francais in 1781, he was confronted by an angry plantation owner. Telemach had suffered epileptic fits and was totally unsuitable for work in the sugar fields. Captain Vesey refunded the plantation owner's payment and took repossession of Telemach, making him a cabin boy, appointing him as personal assistant, renaming him Denmark Vesey. He never again showed signs of epilepsy. <laughs> the young Vesey was thought to have some knowledge of Danish, French, and English. As a mature man, he was known to be deeply literate in Gula and Creole. Slave captains seldom ventured into the interior of Africa to collect slaves. Instead, human cargoes were brought at barbaric fortified pens along the coast called factories, where the language of commerce could be French, Portuguese, Arabic, or a Creolized African. To have it aside for some 19 years, a young black man of notable handsomeness who also had a facility for new languages, must have been a great comfort to Joseph Vesey. <laughs> Seven, a battle and a victory. On the cruise ship in Florida, Nancy was sedately sponging off Bez's ragged dick when they suddenly heard a child scream. Then they saw the father looking up and with a cry of horror sprang to the edge of the boat. He would have plunged in, but being rich, he knew he could pay someone else to do that for him. <laughs> my child, he exclaimed in anguish, who will save my child? A thousand, ten thousand dollars to anyone who will save him. Now, Dick just happened to be an expert swimmer. Little Johnny had already risen once and gone uh, under for the second time when our hero plunged in. Of course, Dick never heard that rich guy utter one single solitary word about a reward. Put your arms around my lap, Dick cried. The boy mechanically obeyed. Nancy clutched George's hand as if she were chewing on a puppy. It wasn't any trouble, he later said modestly. I can swim like a top. Besides, Nancy cried, he's been vaccinated and altered, and he sells for about $200. Otherwise, I would have just jumped in to save my own drink. That settles it, declared the persnickety plutocrat deciding right then and there to kill Juarez Tino, whose obscurity was just too fucking irritating. He also settled Dick into a nice new room and a nice quarter of the city, gave him a nice, quiet cravat and a nice new home. Richard Hunt, Esquire, a young gentleman on the way to fame and fortune, Freddie Fosdick declared deliriously. Fosnick, Fosnick knew a lot about that particular slippery slope since he just happened to be dating the actress Benita Granville while she was playing feisty at Holston Nancy Drew in the popular movie series. Benita's versatile and schizoid persona really got Fosnick hot. Rarely did the sizzling duo even get to report to the playpen in their favorite monument. Before that, Benita had played Mary, a naughty and spiteful girl, spreading malicious lies about her teachers in William Hellman's These Three, for which at age 13, Granville had won Best Supporting Actress nomination. The next year, 1937, in Maid of Salem, she led an hysterical group of village girls as accuser in the Salem witch trials. 
Granville, who was also a blonde, blue-eyed, Aryan Nazi, ideal youth, and a huge Hitler, and a huge hit Hitler's children, retired from the screen in the 50s, married a millionaire, and subsequently became a businesswoman as well as the producer of the TV series Lassie. <laughs> you know, scholarly and stone, Terry Scott intoned. Horatio Alger published over 100 books in his lifetime. Very popular then, they were bigger sellers in cheap editions during the first decade of the 20th century. But even he had a hard time swallowing his own rags to riches guff. And in later years, Alger started making his plots and characters as lurid as dime store novels. Some of them were even banned in public libraries. Alger himself concluded in 1896 that the kind of sensational stories he wrote, quote, do much harm are very objectionable. That was the lowest point in his career as a young man, uh, since as a young man, a special parish investigating committee had kicked him out of the Unitarian Church in Brewster, Mass, where he had been minister. Alger had neither denied nor defended himself against the charge of two boys who said he'd been practicing on them at different times, quote, the abominable and revolting crime of unnatural familiarity with boys. <laughs> now we're getting somewhere, Nancy cried feverishly. <laughs> Exotic windswept palms leapt wildly, so alive. It's easy to imagine the white paranoia in Charleston, where slaves had long outnumbered white residents. In the 1800 census, the district reported 18,768 whites 63,315 blacks. As early as 1780, the city of Charleston contained more blacks than Philadelphia, Boston, and New York City combined. In Vesey's day, the distribution of food within the city was de facto controlled by slaves, who delivered foodstuffs to the city's markets or, or were sent there to shop for their households. White Charlestonians complained throughout the 18th century that blacks at their pleasure, chose to supply the town with fish or not. Located on a slight rise above the Cooper River, the interior arcades of the market would have been found peopled almost exclusively by African slaves conducting business independently without supervision and languages impenetrable to whites. Actually, Vizi, who was a skilled carpenter, helped to build that market. Eight, suspicion, frogs in the hollow stump. Too many words, Terry managed to mutter mawkishly right before the disco ball came crashing down on the mysterious large silver frog. A greenish powder trickled out. This substance, Dr. Anderson declared, is terrible power. We must destroy it forever. But the newly tenured Terry Scott thoughtfully replied, Perhaps so, but I believe that frog represents the sacredness of the secret rather than a motive of evil. The secret is that the green powder can heal mankind. It must be an ancient herbal remedy. In other words, all your research today has been total shit, Dr. Anderson. Youth rules. <laughs> I wish all my students were, li were live wires like that wino Nancy Drew, murmured the melancholy doc traversing crumbling corridors. Just as Dr. Anderson, who had begun aging gracefully not so very long ago indeed, was committing suicide, a laughing Nancy declared she was glad the case ended so happily. Now she wondered what new mystery would engorge her. A strange puzzle <laughs> presented itself shortly in about one month. Mystery at the ski dump, which I also subsequently wrote, not in this book. Neely's was an innocent face, a face that looked at everything with breathless excitement and trusting enthusiasm, seemingly unaware of the commotion the body was causing. A face that glowed with genuine interest in each person who demanded attention, rewarding each with a warm va 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 voom smile. The body and its accoutrement, just as one might expect on the steamy valley of the doll set, 
continued to pose and undulate for the stringy crowd and flashing cameras, but the face ignored the furor and greeted people with the intimacy of a lanky puppy snuffing around old bark. But what do you want? Hornrim Terry uh, continued speaking to Toto. Toto only wagged his tail, for strange to say, he could not speak. It was Toto that made Dorothy laugh, and saved her from growing as gray as her other surroundings. Toto was not gay, he was a little black dog, long silky hair and small black eyes that twinkled merrily on either side of the doorway and looked anxiously at the whirling sky. Of course, Carolyn Keene, author of Nancy Drew, never actually existed, but was a pseudonym for a number of freelance writers working for the Stratemeyer Syndicate. Edward Stratemeyer wrote or published all of the important children's series of his day, starting with the Hardy Boys, then the Rover Boys, the Bobsy Twins, up to 10 different juvenile series by 1910. Nancy Drew was the last series that he started right before his death. The syndicate was taken over by his daughter, who continued to pen many a fancy Nancy tale. Stratemeyer himself completed several of Horatio Alger's unfinished last novels, although critics frequently commented on their fundamental differences. Alger's heroes were aspiring, earnestly striving to be more disciplined, more middle class, while the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew were created full-blown, pumped to eager perfection, adventurous, cocky, spunky, always respectful. <laughs> Alger fled the newsboy's lodging house in New York, where he'd actively served in the operation of its home for foundlings and runaways for 30 years. Apparently, three of the grown-up yet still needy boys whom he had adopted <laughs> were frequently appearing at the ailing Alger's door until he headed for his sister's place upstate. Even with her eyes protected by the green spectacles, Horatio and her friends were at first be dazzled by the brilliancy of the wonderful city. The, wind, the wild wind hurtled large tumbleweeds up from the canyons, strewing them across emerald streets. Hauntingly lovely palm fronds swayed and frayed. Nevertheless, the streets were lined with beautiful houses all built of green marble and studded everywhere with yummy, sparkling emerald studs. They walked over a pavement of the same green marble, and where the blocks were joined together, there were rows of emeralds set closely, glittering in the brightness of the sun. The window panes and sluts were green glass. Even the sky above the city had a green tint, and the rays of the sun were green, green, green. Section. Nine. Valley of Dollywood. Author, author, puppy. <laughs> the majority of all syndicated series were written by freelancers who were given a three-page plot outline describing locale, characters, time frame, basic storyline. Each Nancy Drew had 25 chapters which ended in cliffhangers and were written in about one month. The writers received from $50 to $250. In a Salon.com interview, one prolific Nancy Drew author recently related that neither she nor Nancy were ever feminists, merely fearless fetching femmes. <laughs> Anne smiled at Neely's logic. Neely had no education, but she had the inborn intelligence of a mongrel puppy, plus the added sparkle that, that makes one puppy stand out in a litter. <laughs> this puppy was clumsy, frank, and eager, with long silky hair and twinkling small black eyes, and a streak of unexpected worldliness running through her innocence. Neely had spent the first seven years of her life in foster home. On the hot pink glossy cover of the 1966 edition of The Valley of the Dolls, put out by the otherwise avant-garde press, Grove Press, a blurb from a village voice writer claims that Jacqueline Suzanne's Quote, proto-feminism is prescient. <laughs> the attendant in the power room threw her arms around Helen. She was my first dresser, Helen told Anne. 
Unfortunately, it was beneath her dignity to value me solely for my ample camp qualities. You should have seen her, the woman purred affectionately. She was all legs and friendly as a puppy. I still got good legs, Helen said, but I gotta knock off a few pounds. Bow wow. And Toto, too. The stained dresser added with redundant alacrity, while all followed her blindly through shady portals into iridescent streets of the Emerald City. There were many people, men, women, legs, and children, walking about, and they were all dressed in green clothes and greenish skin. They looked at Helen and her strangely sordid company with wondering eyes, and the children all wandered away and hid behind their mothers when they saw the wordy green puppy lion. <laughs> this is the last section. Ten. True heroism. In his original research on Denmark Vesey, Professor Johnson comments that many historians were dismayed at seeing the legendary Vesey story debunked. They needed to believe in his rebellious heroism. But the true heroism, Johnson points out, is of a different kind. Vesey and 44 other men pled not guilty and refused to testify falsely against fellow slaves. They made the terrible choice to face execution for telling the truth rather than lie and send others to the gallows. There were also some white heroes in Charleston. Eventually, 27 whites testified in court and supported 15 black defendants. Indeed, 83 of the black men refused to testify falsely, despite extensive, tor extensive torture. 90% of the incriminating testimony in the deadliest phase of the trial came only from six slaves. Johnson concludes, quote, it is time to pay attention to the not guilty pleas of almost all the men who went to the gallows, to honor them for their refusal to name names in order to save themselves. Unsung, and we, ourselves, that's it. So I just want to read a few more pages. Um, this is from the long uh, title piece, Encyclopedia of Rebels, which is mostly about John Brown and the Civil War and the abolitionist movement. Um, but it also gets involved with a lot of other biographies of rebels, Dr. Sinclair, Mother Jones. Um, this, I'm just reading a few pages, and it's, gonna, it's not going to give you a sense of the piece, but it'll give you a sense of the materials a bit and how they've been juxtaposed. Some of this is about my own antics in the New West. And ultimately, the piece uh, comes to be about dealing with my uh, former activism and uh, falling away from it, as well as the Civil War. So this is just starting in the middle, and like I say, it's just a few pages. Um, Chairman Mao comes to San Diego. The year, 1972, is setting a household of lesbian Maoists, dressing to go to a cell meeting. Off come combat boots, jeans, flannel shirts, on-go bras, stockings, stockings, garters, dresses. Hair is teased, makeup and perfume carefully, if inexpertly applied. Looking like female impersonators, they leave. <laughs> Mel and his friend Tony, the one roommate who didn't drop out of grad school at UCSD to go work in a factory, have been on the bed watching. Tony's a female. Mel, who do they think they're kidding? Tony, well, you know, the Central Committee is like your parents. It's okay as long as you don't show it or talk about it. Mel, gay is bourgeois decadence, I know. That's so fucked up. They're lucky they don't have to dress like that at work. Tony, oh, Kate's not at NASCO anymore. Mel, I like Kate a lot. She's the only one of them who's actually working class. Tony, she just got a job at a power plant on the night shift. Mel, really? I didn't think she was a night person. She's not. It's so she can shut it down. What? When the call comes. Mel, oi. <laughs> Tony, heresy in this household, I know. But at least the trots acknowledge gays as an oppressed minority. Mel, 
Yeah, and look what happened to Trotsky. <laughs> Not long afterwards, the House became important as the informal headquarters of the NASCO 7 Defense Committee. Other former grad students we knew who worked in the shipbuilding yard, including a much like Chicano couple, had gained minor media attention by calling a wildcat strike to protest perilous health and safety conditions. Wildcat strikes are not officially um, sanctioned by the union officers. They're like, you know, impromptu, rebellious. Two days later, after the wildcat strike, an explosion at NASCO killed several workers. Suddenly, these prescient maverick unionists were all, were all over the local news. It was wild. Turn on the TV set. See a secret commie. Soon, an undercover agent convinced them to buy firearms, and they were busted. If I remember correctly, coming back in their van and a sting operation broadcast live. Although we kept asking ourselves how they could have made such a dumb move, the answer was obvious. Agent provocateurs were masters at manipulating party members, using a line that confirmed their deepest fears and heartfelt beliefs. Fascism is just around the corner. It's revolution now or never. For most of us here in the heart of the military machine, revolution just sounded like the wish to live in Berkeley. <laughs> Fascism, however, did have a certain ring of conviction. Most scholars basically view Martha Canary, a.k.a. Calamity Jane, as a drunken prostitute. Leaving Missouri with her family around 1865, Martha was often orphaned by the time she reached the Dakotas in Wyoming. She worked on and off as a prostitute, cook, laundress, dancehall girl, scout, and allegedly a horse wrestler who also cut down cedar logs to sell the ranchers. She did ride into Deadwood with Wild Bill Hickok, but they were not intimates. Martha often wore men's clothes, though that was illegal in some areas. Testimonies indicate that, quote, her habits were thoroughly masculine, and she frequently danced with the girls just as the men did. At different times, Martha ran several dance halls. One tale has her as co-proprietor with Madame Bulldog, who the Montana State Guidebook claimed tipped the scales at 190 stripped, and stripped she was most of the time. Once, when they quarreled, quote, Madam Bulldog tossed Calamity Jane into the street as easy as licking three men. Martha did not fight back. Calamity was tougher in hell, but she wasn't crazy. Another story had her running a brothel with Madam Mustache in Montana. There's an account of 1876 in Deadwood when only three women were available for saloon hole dancing. All had fantastic names like Tidbit, Big Dolly, Dirty M, and Sizzlin' Kate. So a man was dressed in feminine garb, corseted and padded with closely shingled hair, and sold liquor as easily as the women. Later, Calamity Jane helped turn herself into a mythological figure by touring with popular Wild West shows, playing herself, wearing a writing a fallacious autobiography in which she was a lover of Wild Bill Hickok, frontier scout, scout, stagecoach, Pony Express driver, and had an important role in General George Crook's campaign against the Sioux Indians. Her actual life is obscured by multiple rumors, partly because there were a number of Calamity James to whom various legends accrued. more short section. Um, both of John Brown's parents came from families filled with Calvinistic piety. John Brown's father, Owen Brown, was a farmer and cobbler whose roots probably went back to the Mayflower. John's grandfather died in the Continental Army Camp in New York when his son Owen was five. He and his ten siblings were raised by religious relatives where he was exposed to anti-slavery sermons of Jonathan Edwards, Jr., Owen Brown was an abolitionist and reliable conductor on the Underground Railroad. His son grew up with those attitudes. Unlike most of his contemporaries, John Brown never had a conversion experience to abolitionism. Reynolds claims, Reynolds wrote this cultural biography about Brown, but a lot of this comes from. Reynolds claims that Brown's attitude towards slaves were free of the, the, the were free of the 
condescension and snobbery, which characterized many of even the most zealous abolitionists like Charles Sumner, who were born into the East Coast establishment. As a father himself, John Brown, disciple of Edward Stern Doomsday Sermons, believed his own sins were reflected in his children's disobedience. He had 20 of them, mostly with one wife. Seven sons and four daughters lived to maturity. Brown kept a, lot, a ledger of John Jr.'s offenses, which he often showed the boy. For disobeying mother, eight lashes. For unfaithfulness at work, three lashes. Finally, when Brown, a failed entrepreneur and businessman, decided the boy's debits outnumbered his credits, he took his son into the barn for an accounting. Seizing a beach switch, he gave the boy a third of the apportioned lashes. Then, stopping unexpectedly, Brown took off his own shirt and bent down, commanding the son to whip him. The father cried, harder, 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 until the blood bubbled on his back, and he had, quote, received the balance of his account. Then just one short section. About a year after the bust, this is going back to the NASCO 7 bust, um, they eventually got off on probation. A lefty hospital worker spotted the suspected agent provocateur. His wife was having a baby registered under a different name than the one he'd been using. Let us say Bill King. Several local underground papers did some research, including the San Diego Street Journal, whose considerable successes in the past have been instrumental in putting C. Arnold Smith, one of Nixon's chief financial henchmen, in prison and could be measured in direct proportion to how frequently the street journal's offices and sometimes homes were being firebombed. That paper had been co-founded by Lowell Bergman, a grad student at UCSD studying with Herbert Marcuse, radical Marxist philosopher and new left icon. Later in his career, Bergman broke the tobacco industry cover-up on the Mike Wallace show. Fascinating and repugnant, San Diego was truly the Wild West then. Leftist groups were frequently called upon to put our bodies on the line at woman care, the only abortion provider in town, till it emerged with Planned Parenthood. At different points, Marcuse was getting so many death threats that some of his grad students took turns sleeping at his house armed. That was true. The, uh, the Street Journal published Bill King's photo and aliases as part of their baseball card series at the local Red Squad. Get the whole set. Trade him with your friends. With long, unkept, curly dark hair, thick beard, customary army jacket, and strident voice, King might have been a disgruntled vet, not a college student. A few years later, he inadvertently came to play an odd but key role in my own arts organizing strategy. That followed my involvement with the Farm Workers Support Group, which raised money and picketed Safeways on weekends during the seemingly endless grape boycott. Keeping a designated number of feet away from the entrance, trying to convince shoppers not to go inside, up my alienation from San Diego by quite a few notches. Unionists and their sympathizers left immediately. Most others were oblivious or hostile. By the end of my rather prolonged participation, I much preferred standing by the roadside for hours holding a sign rather than having to speak to anyone. The breaking point came when a group of hippies merrily skipped out of the store one day and offered us some trail mix. Don't eat it, I shrieked. It might be poison. It was then I realized I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I have to be more involved with my own community. That's the uh, I think Melvin will be happy to take some questions and then sign some books. So, especially the latter. Yeah, <laughs> happier to sign books. Yeah. Um, don't feel obliged, you know. <laughs> yeah. I am Jim. Thanks for reading today. Uh, I have a question about isolating the readers. Um, I, I think that a lot of the language or a lot of the topics I want to write about 
uh, the way I want to put my emotion into it necessarily would isolate a lot of people from reading my work seriously. And it's a lot of your stuff is charged that way. Does it enter your mind uh, while you're actually developing your story, or does it come into play? Well, you know, it's always the question is about whether the material, I, I guess, is so is too personal or too um, specific for a lot of readers not to, to be able to relate to. Um, you know, I try to put a lot of funny stuff in there so that people will kind of, you know, perk up. Um, you know, I think you come up with different strategies for different pieces that you're writing. And some are going to be, I mean, Nancy Drew, you know, to me is so iconic, but to younger people, she's probably a distant, you know, voice or that they once heard about. Um, so that already is, is an isolating factor. You know, I'm not in a position to write about Hannah Montana, um, or even to know who that is. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I really, I think it's, it's really, you know, anything experimental by definition is going to have a narrow readership. Um, so you sort of, you know, pay your penny and take your choice, as they say in Upton. Um, but sometimes, uh, you know, I think that it is a consideration, I mean, who your potential readers are and what kind of strategies you want to devise to, to reach them. That's, that's a real consideration and a continued one. Yeah. I don't know if that... Okay, well, thanks for coming, especially on my friend.